Welcome back, everybody. Another episode of You Make Me Sick. This week, we're going to be doing uh, Orthopox Viruses, Part 2. We'll be doing uh, this episode on smallpox. So we did monkeypox last week. Uh, much less deadly version of this orthopox virus. Uh, this week, we'll be doing smallpox, which actually is a extremely, extremely deadly virus. Uh, it's actually been eradicated. We'll get into that. I'm going to the history of it, uh, responsible for uh, many, many, many deaths. Uh, we actually reached the moon on this one. So, uh, before we get started, though, I want to do a monkeypox update. Since we're still going to have an orthopox virus here. Uh, as of today, today is, what do we got, June 9th. Uh, this monkeypox outbreak, this epidemic, it's still happening. There are now over 1,000 cases in 29 different countries outside of West and Central Africa. Uh, the UK and the US kind of uh, lead those. There are 321 new confirmed cases in the UK. Um, I shouldn't say the US leads it, but there's another 15 states and 35 confirmed cases in the US. So this keeps on going. Uh, like I said on my last podcast, this will probably continue and continue. Uh, it is interesting, though, the WHO now is finally kind of trying to get people to pay attention to uh, the spread of the disease and where it started in Africa and hopefully get some more funding to try and do more research and uh, put an end. Um, possibly try to eradicate it, I don't know, but at least uh, shed a little light uh, that this is still an issue, you know, in underdeveloped countries and especially in Africa. And uh, here in the U.S., the CDC also uh, trying to bring uh, a little more attention to it. They did raise their travel alert to a level two, so if you're going somewhere that... Uh, has known cases of monkeypox. They want people to practice enhanced precautions. They also did this, uh, they were suggesting masking while traveling again, and then they rescinded that. Uh, there was a lot of confusion, I think. The CDC, who have done, I don't know, I don't want to criticize too much, but not a, a great job on explaining uh, masking, how it works, and the different types of respiratory precautions, droplet versus airborne, uh, and what protects who from what. Anyway, they rescinded their mask recommendation uh, because with the monkeypox, uh, especially the cases that have been turning up, um, it's still, it seems like it's more of a contact issue right now uh, with a lot of it being kind of genital to genital contact. So, but that's kind of where we're at right now with the monkeypox update. So with that in mind, uh, we'll jump on in and get started on smallpox. So smallpox has been around for thousands of years. Uh, it's caused by the variola virus, which is a orthopox virus, uh, and began causing illness and deaths as far back as I think is about 10,000 years ago. So it's been around for a very long time, uh, with outbreaks occurring from time to time and causing epidemics. But uh, thankfully, with uh, the help of vaccination, it's actually been eradicated. Uh, 1977, I believe, was the last with the WHO considers the last case of smallpox. Some will say that 1980, but uh, the World Health Assembly in 1980 declared it completely eradicated, and there haven't been any naturally occurring smallpox cases since. Uh, so with smallpox, it is an orthopox virus. Uh, comes from the genus orthopox. Uh, species, as I said, is variola virus. Uh, variola, or uh, varius, is Latin, meaning stained. Uh, and varus is a mark on the skin. Uh, so the term uh, pock also means sac. So kind of referred to the pustules and the, I guess the scarring that it would leave uh, post-illness. 
and these terms were actually kind of brought to light in about uh, the 15th century or so in England, and we've kind of just used them since then. As I said, the virus is actually named the variola virus. So, uh, Pox viruses, I didn't get too much in depth in the last podcast about these. Uh, I did mention they're the largest of the human viruses. Uh, they have a brick-shaped appearance on an electronic microscope. They have a linear, double-stranded DNA genome. And the crazy thing about pox viruses is they're the only known viruses that actually don't need the host's DNA or their uh, cellular machinery to actually replicate. So most viruses, the way they work is they get into the cell, they get into the cell's nucleus, and they hijack the RNA or the DNA, and then they're able to replicate. Pox viruses, though, can actually do their replication in the cell cytoplasm, which is a huge advantage for them. Um, less chance of them uh, in the intracellular environment uh, being killed, uh, and they can actually replicate a lot faster as well. So, which makes uh, you know smallpox uh, once it starts to replicate, like I said, it's a little more efficient than these other viruses that actually have to hijack the DNA of the cell. So smallpox, it's a, it's a human disease. There are no known animal reservoirs for it. And this is actually advantageous. It's one of the reasons why it was able to be eradicated. Uh, some of these other viral illnesses that are zoonotic and can be spread back and forth will have animal reservoirs. So even if you got rid of the uh, disease in the human population, there's still the chance that you could have crossover some some kind of animal vector. Not an issue with the smallpox. Uh, once it was eradicated in humans, uh, we were able to get rid of it completely. So as far as transmission goes, smallpox, uh, similar to monkeypox, is transmitted via respiratory droplets. But with smallpox, it can actually be uh, what's considered an airborne respiratory droplet, which are much smaller in size. Um, similar with COVID, tuberculosis, uh, influenza. Uh, and these actually cause for, uh, or are cause for different precautions as far as when you're treating or handling the virus. Uh, can also be caused by uh, contact with any kind of lesions or kind of contaminated uh, clothes, bedding, uh, anything that may have any kind of bodily fluids on there. Uh, so transmission uh, can also happen just from the onset of when the lesions appear on people, so when they start to get this pustular rash, uh, up until the point where all these scabs have actually healed on the people. So it could be you know up to a couple of weeks, depending on how severe the case is. Uh, with this airborne transmission, so, you know, in the uh, possible scenario of some kind of human infection, um, these patients would definitely be put in a BSL level 4 uh, unit, a specialized biological isolation unit in a hospital. Uh, and as far as labs go, there's only two known labs right now in the entire world that actually have any kind of samples that we know of of the smallpox. That's in Russia and the United States. These are definitely BSL level 4 labs that uh, handle these samples. And I'll talk a little bit more about this later, just as far as with regard to bioterrorism. Uh, it's the only reason why we actually still have any kind of smallpox uh, samples left uh, in the world. So, uh, so after you get virus, it uh, enters through the nose or the mouth, uh, into the oropharynx or nasal pharynx. Uh, the virus actually migrates to your lymph nodes, and then it starts to replicate. Uh, once replication starts, the initial infection happens eh, about three or four days after the virus is contracted. Uh, after this three or four days, the virus actually travels even further, gets into your bone marrow, your spleen, and then goes through additional lymph node chains in the body, um, becomes systemic. Uh, it's after this happens that there's a secondary infection. This is about day 8 to 12 after contracting the virus. 
And this kind of coincides with the onset of all the clinical symptoms. So uh, you get fevering at this point, uh, back pain, uh, and this is also when the rash starts to appear on a lot of people. Uh, the virus is actually able to get into the blood vessels, small blood vessels that are in the skin, uh, replicates there, and this is what causes the uh, kind of pustules. So with the symptoms, you know, they can range from a high fever to chills. Uh, people get abdominal pain, vomiting, uh, headaches and backaches. With the skin lesions, with this rash, uh, typically it'll start on the forearms or the face, and then it spreads to the rest of the body. Uh, the palms of the hands and the soles of the feet uh, are frequently involved as well. Uh, what kind of makes smallpox different from a lot of other viruses, something like chickenpox, chickenpox will actually present more on the torso and be a little more scattered on the extremities. Uh, it's kind of the opposite for the smallpox. Smallpox is uh, more localized on the extremities and the face, and you'll still have some uh, on the torso, but much less numerous than with some of these other viruses. So once you get this rash, uh, it's actually a process that you go through. Um, there's usually about 48 hours between kind of each uh, development, developmental period for these pustules. So it kind of starts out where you just get uh, little macules which turn into papules. Uh, so small bumps into larger bumps. Then they turn into vesicles, uh, which kind of have a little fluid in them. Then pustules, so you get pus underneath, uh, often draining. And then they will actually kind of crust up and scab over. Uh, typically takes about two to three weeks uh, just for all the scabbing of these lesions to happen. Uh, the lesions are usually pretty deep too and can actually cause uh, some kind of uh, disfigured scarring once they actually heal up. And that was another kind of common side effect and uh, something that uh, when you look back in history was mentioned uh, about people who have suffered from smallpox and actually survived. As far as treatments, so as I said, it's been eradicated, so there's no active treatment for it. Uh, but uh, there actually there's still development for therapies for smallpox. Uh, in 2018, uh, the United States here we actually approved tecoviramat as the first antiviral to try and fight smallpox. Uh, never been, I mean, it's been tested on humans for safety trials, but because there have been no humans who have had smallpox in the last, what, almost 50 years, you know, uh, they're not sure of the efficacy as far as if you have somebody who has smallpox, but in animal studies, it's actually been very effective. Uh, it's got a pretty good safety profile, and uh, there's also uh, studies going on for people who have been vaccinated and had complications about possibly using the drug to help treat that as well. Uh, but as I said, with the eradication of smallpox, there hasn't been a great deal of need for any kind of treatment, but uh, there is an antiviral that has been effective and is approved. So just in case uh, whatever, you know, if there is a bioterrorist attack or by some, you know, uh, some kind of lab accident uh, where smallpox escapes, there is, uh, you know, another line of treatment for it. So now let's get into a little bit of the history of the smallpox. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, theorized that it's been around for about, well, I should say over 10,000 years. 10,000 BC uh, is the first time they think it was actually kind of present. Uh, northeastern Africa uh, is where it's believed to have been spread. Uh, after that, uh, theoretically to India by Egyptian merchants. 
the earliest evidence of skin lesions uh, resembling smallpox was actually found on some of the mummies uh, from Egyptian dynasties, like the 18th and 20th Egyptian dynasties, which was between 1570 and 1085 BC. Uh, they actually have the mummified head of uh, the pharaoh Ramses V, who died in 1156 BC. They have evidence of the disease. I guess there's uh, still preserved uh, areas where they think the smallpox scarring. So uh, very, very long time this has been around. Um, there are also reports uh, from ancient Asian cultures as far as 1122 BC, reports of uh, diseases that... Uh, sound like they probably are smallpox just based on uh, kind of objective evidence. Uh, and there's also uh, mention in ancient Sanskrit in India uh, of the same thing. So it sounds like this virus has been around for a long time, uh, spread geographically uh, pretty well uh, over thousands of years as well. Uh, as far as being introduced into Europe, uh, it's believed to be in the 5th and 7th centuries. Uh, multiple epidemics during the Middle Ages as well. So not only are you dealing with, uh, you know, the Black Plague, but then on top of that you have smallpox. Uh, you know, the old the old British saying, a pox upon ye, right? Yeah, there's a smallpox. So uh, There's also uh, evidence in the first stages in the decline of the Roman Empire, uh, which is around 108 AD. Uh, there was a large-scale epidemic called the Plague of Antonine, which killed about 7 million people uh, in the Roman Empire. This was also contributed to smallpox. Uh, as far as the Arab expansion uh, with, and uh, the Crusades, uh, as well as the discovery of the West Indies, all this travel uh, back and forth through different continents is also believed to have uh, helped spread the disease uh, just by migration uh, traveling trade routes. Uh, smallpox as far as uh, in the New World, so uh, Spanish and Portuguese conquistadors. So this was a major factor in the decimation of the Aztecs and the Incas. Uh, these civilizations were essentially all wiped out uh, by smallpox. Um, at the same time, uh, on the eastern coast of the United States here in North America, uh, early settlers kind of led to the spread and destruction uh, in the native population. So Native Americans as well were wiped out. And we'll get into it in a little bit when I talk about bioterrorism as well, just the use of smallpox, uh, Native American population during the French and Indian War that was actually decimated uh, by Sir Geoffrey Amherst, who was a commander of British forces, uh, who did use smallpox to infect and try to quote-unquote reduce the American Indian population. Uh, that have been hostile towards the British. Uh, additional issues were slave trade. So uh, slaves were often brought here from countries that were endemic with smallpox, uh, just in introducing them to areas of the New World where they'd never been before. So all these factors uh, spread to just the worldwide spread of smallpox and, uh, like I said, the deaths of a lot of people and civilizations. Uh, as far as in Europe in the 18th century, so if we kind of jump ahead a little bit, uh, it was estimated about 400,000 people died annually of smallpox, uh, and then one-third of the survivors of smallpox actually went blind. Uh, you know, mortality rates varied anywhere from about 20% to 60%, depending on how bad the disease process was. And those who did survive often were left severely disfigured, uh, just from the scarring from all the pock marks. Uh, 
as far as infants, infant case fatality rates were extremely high as well. Uh, there were estimates in the 1800s that uh, infants in London, about 80% fatality rate. And then for Berlin, there was a 98% if you had an infant that came down with smallpox. So extremely deadly, uh, especially for the very, very young. Um, there were some treatment uh, methods that... Uh, Interestingly enough, we think of vaccination and inoculation being relatively new, uh, but it's actually something that's been practiced for a long time. There's evidence of it being practiced in Africa, India, and China uh, long before the 18th century when it was first introduced, uh, at least on a grand scale, uh, in Europe, and it was in uh, the UK, actually, where it started. Um, so the first real treatment uh, of smallpox that was documented uh, was by a Dr. Sydenham. Uh, this is a failed method uh, by Dr. Sydenham, but uh, I did want to mention it. His way of treating his patients with smallpox, so he allowed no fire in the room with the patient. Uh, he wanted to leave the windows permanently open. Uh, he didn't want uh, any of the bed sheets higher than the patient's waist. And then he would administer 12 bottles of small beer every 24 hours to these patients. So, don't know where Dr. Sydenham got his uh, medical doctorate from, but uh, getting your patients drunk and letting them freeze, I don't know how much of a treatment that would be. There's Unfortunately, I couldn't find uh, any idea of the success rate of this, but pretty sure it was probably not super successful. Uh, but with inoculation... Um, the first record that I could kind of find in the, you know, recent times was about in 1670. Uh, and this was actually uh, introduced to the Turkish Ottoman Empire. Uh, this would actually have a profound effect on the future of inoculation and vaccination. Uh, it was in uh, 1714 where the Royal Society of London actually received a couple of letters, uh, well, 1417 to 1416. One was from an Emmanuel Timoni who talked about uh, the technique of vaccination that he witnessed in Turkey. Uh, and he also, there was also a letter that was received by Giacomo Pilarino in 1716 describing the exact same type of inoculation uh, to the same Royal Society of London just trying to inform them about this uh, type of treatment that was actually quite successful. But the real impetus for the start of vaccination attempts in Britain uh, all kind of began in 1715, so between the time of these two letters that were sent. Uh, Lady Montague, who was the wife of a British ambassador, uh, suffered from an episode of smallpox, uh, left her severely disfigured, uh, it also killed her brother, who was only 20 years old, about uh, 18 months later. So in 1717, uh, Montague's husband, uh, who just coincidentally was appointed ambassador uh, to Sublime Port in Istanbul, Turkey. Uh, a few weeks after arriving in Istanbul, um, she actually wrote to one of her friends about the method of vaccination that they use in the Ottoman court. Uh, she actually later ordered uh, the embassy surgeon to inoculate her five-year-old son, which is one of the first times that this has actually been documented of anybody having uh, their children vaccinated. Uh, this was performed in March of 1718. They actually wound up going back to London in 1721. Uh, Lady Montague uh, had Charles Maitland, who was another uh, kind of one of these physicians of the court, inoculate 
her other four-year-old daughter in the presence of physicians in the royal court. So she wanted an audience for this just to show them exactly what the kind of procedure looked like, uh, how it was done, uh, that it could be done safely. Um, following the success of this inoculation, uh, there was actually a trial. Uh, this uh, The uh, British had six prisoners in 1721, and... Uh, they inoculated all of them. They all survived the experiment. Uh, and those exposed to smallpox later actually proved to be immune. Um, I know this sounds cruel and unusual, but these prisoners were actually granted freedom after they had this experiment done. So there's kind of a little give and take there. Uh, in the following, uh, the same experiment was actually repeated on orphan children, um, again with success. Uh, I'm not going to speak to the atrocities of orphanage back in the 17 and 1800s. Uh, you can read some Charles Dickens uh, if you want to some insight on that. Uh, but with this success, uh, inoculation actually started to catch on. Uh, in 1722, two daughters of the Princess of Wales uh, were actually inoculated. And then after that, it kind of gained general acceptance. Uh, Soon after, uh, the practice kind of spread all throughout Europe. Uh, there was evidence that it was actually pretty successful. Uh, that's not to say there wasn't risk uh, without inoculation. You know, there were always chances that uh, you could contract smallpox, which again would spread and cause another epidemic. Or even if you were able to get, you know, if you got smallpox and it was uh, even lesser, uh, you know, it didn't kill you, it could still leave you severely disfigured. But uh, it was found to be that uh, the mortality rate and the rate of illness from that was far less uh, than if you hadn't been inoculated. So uh, transmission of other diseases was kind of an issue as well. Uh, syphilis and other bloodborne illnesses could actually be uh, transmitted from uh, person to person with inoculation. Uh, and inoculation, I should, uh, I should mention, it was essentially finding... Um, an open wound or pustule from somebody and getting a, a lancet or a needle and then taking that, uh, taking some, some pus or some, just some drainage from that on the needle and then injecting somebody else with it. So not exceptionally sterile, not, uh, not the safest way, but it did save, uh, you know, countless lives and, uh, it was really the, got the ball rolling for inoculation. Uh, which still took a little while to catch on, but this was the start. Uh, as far as introduction into the Americas, so as we all know, colonial times here, uh, kind of this is even uh, pre-Revolutionary uh, War. So uh, here in Boston, where I'm actually taping this right now, uh, some people might recognize these names. There was a Reverend Cotton Mather, and Dr. Zabjil Boylston. Uh, both of these gentlemen were kind of the first to really introduce uh, inoculation into New England and into the Americas. Uh, it did take time for this to become accepted, actually. Uh, this all started when uh, Cotton Mather, so there was a ship from the West Indies uh, that carried some uh, people who had been infected with smallpox into Boston. This was in 1721. Uh, epidemic broke out in the city. Uh, other parts of Massachusetts started to spread. Uh, Mather had actually heard about uh, people being inoculated, uh, recommended the immediate vaccination uh, of citizens, but uh, you know he was only able to persuade Dr. Boylston, uh, as far as a medical professional, to actually agree with his assessment. 
But uh, with Cotton Mather's support, uh, Boylston actually was able to start a vaccination program uh, and started to vaccinate a lot of people who were volunteering for it. Uh, there was a lot of pushback, though. There were uh, a lot of adversaries for inoculation, uh, both in the public and the medical community. Uh, even though the disease kept spreading, uh, the controversy was kind of, it, it grew and it grew, including an assassination attempt on Mather. Somebody tried to throw a bomb, or they threw a bomb into his house, um, but they did not kill him. So with all this controversy, uh, Mather decided that he should actually try and use a statistical approach to compare the mortality rates of a natural smallpox infection with that uh, of those contracted by people who have been vaccinated. Uh, during this epidemic of 1721, uh, about half of Boston's 12,000 citizens got smallpox, and the fatality rate for naturally uh, existing smallpox was about 14%, whereas the individuals at Boylston and Mather, who actually inoculated, had about a 2% mortality rate. Uh, it was by using this statistical analysis, and this may have been actually the first time that there was comparative analysis to help evaluate uh, a medical procedure, um, the data helped actually convince the public that inoculation was effective. And soon after this, it became accepted and widely used. Uh, but even with vaccination, you know, smallpox still remained a threat. Uh, skip ahead about 40 years. Uh, in 1766, during the Revolutionary War, uh, George Washington, uh, they were trying to actually, his, he and his soldiers were trying to take Quebec from British troops. But they were unable to because uh, his, uh, a lot of his company wound up getting smallpox, getting sick, whereas the British troops had actually all been inoculated uh, and had no, uh, I didn't say have no, but there was a, it did not impede them uh, as far as uh, related to the smallpox epidemic at that time. Uh, so this actually prompted Washington to make it mandatory for his soldiers to be vaccinated uh, so that he would no longer have issues at least dealing with uh, smallpox and trying to run his campaign, which may or may not have contributed to uh, the United States becoming what it was, uh, this awesome country. God bless America. Thank you for vaccinations. Anyway, uh, so, you know, prior to the 18th century, uh, you know, vaccination had been around uh, for a little while, but it wasn't until the late 18th century that uh, the work of Edward Jenner, who was actually the first person that the scientific community considers, uh, he's almost like a father of immunology. Uh, it, was, it wasn't because he was the first one to discover vaccinations or how to inoculate people, but he was the first one to actually study it uh, and was actually able to he theorize that using a similar virus instead of a smallpox virus to inoculate people may be safer and you might get the same uh, outcome as far as your immunity. Uh, and he was correct in this. He actually used cowpox viruses, which are far less deadly than smallpox, far less contagious, and used cowpox virus as his inoculation medium. Uh, which greatly reduced the amount of people who would actually contract smallpox from being vaccinated. Had a lot of other work in the field, but uh, when people, they talk about uh, immunology and immunization and vaccinations, Edward Jenner's name, it's, it's brought up. Uh, sometimes it's kind of the foundation of immunology, uh, even though he wasn't the first to do it. Uh, eventually, though, so vaccinia virus is what... Uh, Cowpox kind of, uh, at the time, was great. 
but uh, we were actually able to use vaccinia virus to replace cowpox as the viral agent for smallpox vaccinations in modern times. Uh, it's genetically distinct from cowpox, um, and the origins of vaccinia are uncertain, but uh, it's, uh, it's safer, I guess, even than cowpox, and it's what was used uh, in the vaccinations that uh, kind of eradicated the virus back in the 70s. That being said, uh, vaccination worked well, did great, but there were issues with it. Uh, it did not offer lifelong immunity, uh, so revaccination was definitely necessary for it. Uh, and even though the mortality from smallpox had declined, uh, there were still epidemics that popped up, especially in areas where there was no vaccination uh, and where they didn't have the uh, medical facilities or uh, training to actually administer these vaccinations. Um, in the 1950s, though, uh, a number of control measures were implemented. Uh, smallpox was essentially eradicated uh, in most of Europe and North America at this time. Uh, but the process of worldwide eradication actually didn't happen uh, until, like I said, the 70s. So the uh, World Health Assembly received a report in 1958 just about uh, epidemics in about 63 different countries that were just completely destroying uh, these populations. So in 1967, there was actually a global campaign, uh, and this is under the guardianship of the World Health Organization. And through this campaign, they were actually able to successfully eradicate smallpox by 1977. And then, as I mentioned before, in 1980, um, the World Health Assembly announced that the world was actually free of smallpox, uh, with the exception of samples that uh, were in biological labs. So um, I do want to talk about bioterrorism now. So with smallpox eradicated just from natural reservoirs, the only real threat that remains would be a bioterror attack. Uh, this was a definitely, after 9-11, something that kind of raised the eyebrows uh, of a lot of officials and experts. Uh, the thought of using uh, smallpox, uh, you could put it, you know, because it's a virus and it's spread uh, through airborne droplets, it could be spread really easily, uh, especially in closed, crowded places. So you think about subways, sporting arenas, uh, concert venues. Uh, you could easily infect, you know, tens of thousands of people pretty easily and then start a new epidemic. Uh, because of this, uh, the United States and Russia both have stockpiles, I wouldn't say stockpiles, but they still have samples of smallpox, which we're able to make vaccines from. And, uh, there's also stockpiles of smallpox vaccine. Uh, and I believe that I was reading that they're actually, so they've been using it for these cases of monkeypox that are out now uh, because a smallpox vaccine as an orthopox virus is effective uh, at preventing uh, monkeypox as well. And I think they're releasing uh, even more um, samples uh, to the CDC uh just in case, just because the monkeypox, they're, they're fearing there might be even larger spread of monkeypox. So, uh, But those are available if needed. And as I mentioned before, uh, with the French and Indian War, um, British soldiers distributed smallpox-affected blankets to American Indians and wiped out entire, entire tribes of American Indians and Native American populations. Um, in the 1980s, it should also be mentioned that the Soviet Union developed uh, variola as an aerosol biological weapon. Uh, I guess they produced tons of virus-laden material, uh, and they were going to strap this to ballistic missiles. 
So uh, the Russians at one point, and who knows, they, they, they may even still have this capability right now. I think that's why we, you know, have these, I, I think I read it was a million doses of smallpox vaccine available right now with the ability to make more of it. So it's still a, a concern. Uh, bioterrorism, uh, you know, it will always be a concern. Uh, but uh, at the moment, uh, no, no other cases of smallpox have, you know, than known in any kind of human population. So now we get to our death toll. So smallpox uh, is insane. This has killed, uh, I was astounded by the number of people uh, that smallpox has actually killed. Uh, I didn't even go all the way back to, you know, I could go back theoretically to the first uh, description of it, you know, 10,000 years ago. Uh, I just went back to uh, to essentially year zero, since we know that uh, the Roman Empire that uh, in 108 AD had their own epidemic. Uh, that's kind of what I'm using as my starting point. So up until the point of eradication, which is 1977. So that's, uh, you know, 1,977 years. Uh, difficult to really estimate how many deaths per year um, for smallpox. But there was a physician and a professor uh, named D.A. Anderson who actually wrote a paper about, I think it's a book, not a paper, about uh, the eradication of smallpox. He estimated there were up to 5 million people each year that uh, died from this disease, which is an insane amount. But when you think about it, you know, it wiped out entire civilizations. So we're going to use 5 million deaths per year. Uh, we're going to use 1,977 years. So. That gives us uh, 9,885,000,000 deaths from smallpox. So we take the average height, uh, 5 foot 5 inches, multiply that by these 9, almost 10 billion people. Uh, that gives us about 10,140, I'm sorry, 10,140,861.7 miles. So that's if we stack these bodies head to toe. It's a long way. So in the past, we haven't even come close. So I always try to, you know, could we stack these bodies to the moon? How many Empire State Buildings? How many times around the Earth? So if we try to get to the moon, which is 238,855 miles, uh, we could actually reach the moon 423 times. Uh, if we take our Empire State Building, uh, it's got a height of 1,441 feet. We could actually uh, reach the top of the Empire State Building 37,157,356 times. Uh, and then to finish it off, uh, so the Earth has got a circumference of 24,901 miles. We could actually wrap our dead around the Earth 407 times. So smallpox definitely one of the most deadly diseases. Um, obviously the most deadly we've talked about here. And this is probably an underestimation, depending on, you know, if you go back as far as, you know, for as long as the disease has been around. So really, really insane. So it's also a, you know, a huge milestone that something that has been this deadly throughout time that we were able to eradicate it. And, it, you know, it kind of makes me wonder if we worked a little bit harder, how, you know, how many of these other diseases you could get rid of. Um, one important point that I mentioned before, though, is that this is solely a human virus. This doesn't, you know, cross over into other kind of animal populations. So you don't have to worry about uh, reservoirs in the animal population and that zoonotic transmission. 
but uh, still pretty crazy. So um, smallpox, uh, crazy orthovirus. Um, like I said, compared to monkeypox, which is, uh, you know, it, it's small potatoes. Uh, not saying that it's not, uh, you know, terrible illness with uh, kind of nasty disfigurement, but uh, compared to smallpox, uh, definitely not as deadly. So I uh, want to thank everybody for listening. Um, I want to thank uh, Braden for tuning in. Thank you, buddy. I also want to thank uh, all my international listeners. Uh, I've got uh, listeners in Chad, the Dominican. i got listeners in, uh, where else do we have a lot of listeners from? Uh, South Korea. And I want to say in Holland as well. And Finland. So thank you for anybody who's tuned in. Um, I don't know if you actually like it or not, but I appreciate the time you take. As always, uh, suggestions, feedback. Uh, if there's any kind of uh, disease process that you want me to talk about, uh, please email me. Uh, sickpod at gmail.com. So thank you, everybody. Uh, until next time, remember to wash your hands. Uh, take care. <laughs>